0: Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for in him the Father, even God, has set his seal. So he points out that there are two kinds of food. There's food for the body, and there's food for the soul. Food for the body is necessary, but it's not the most important food. But food for the inner man, for the spirit, is critically important, and you cannot earn it. It is a gift, the Son of Man shall give it to you. For in Him the Father, even God, has set His seal. He is the only one who can administer this internal food known as eternal life.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Bread of Life Discourse, Part 2. We are studying the Bread of Life discourse from the sermon Jesus delivers in chapter 6 of the book of John. Having fed the 5,000 the day before, the multitude returned to be fed again and to hear this man, Jesus, whom they believed to be a prophet. Their motive is to be physically fed, but John describes the feeding of the 5,000 as a miracle with a message, and Jesus now explains the message of that miracle. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins.
0: Would you take your Bibles please this morning and turn to John chapter six. John chapter six, for those that may be with us for the very first time, we've been working our way through this gospel and the sixth chapter is actually the longest chapter in the entire gospel and certainly one of the most challenging. It's packed with some great doctrinal truths that are found in other places in the Bible here some of them in capsule form, some spelled out in great detail. You know, God tells preachers, pastors, through the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4-2 to preach the Word. He said, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season and that we're to do it with great patience and instruction. So he tells us not only are we to preach, but we are to instruct, we're to teach, and the two cannot be separated. A pastor is not called simply to tell stories and to give some wonderful illustrations or read maybe just a verse here and there and then forget about it no true preaching involves explaining what the bible means and then making application of that bible doctrine now there's a tendency i think in our day to think that instruction or doctrine as it's called in the king james is somehow just dry and academic and unimportant But it's vitally important because really what you understand about biblical doctrine is what you understand about God. Because Bible doctrine is a reflection of what God is like. And so it's not just a matter of a lot of shouting and emotion. I've heard a lot of sermons like that. Shouting and emotion will only produce emotional responses. Now I get excited about the truth. And sometimes I shout, but if I'm shouting my own ideas, it means nothing. And of course, my challenge as a pastor is to minister to a wide span of people, to brand new Christians who have just met the Lord. And some of you are here and you say, Pastor, I, I, I've been saved a short time. I don't understand half of what you say. Well, that's okay. The half you do understand, be concerned about that. Apply what God does show you. Uh, the Word of God is like milk and and it's like meat, and as pastors, we're called to minister to the newest Christian and to the oldest Christian. Now, I know some of you are walking in cold into this passage of Scripture, and some of us are maybe already forgotten it, where we are. So let me bring us into the context of our passage. If you remember, this is the chapter where the Lord feeds 20,000 people. 5,000 households are represented. And uh, he does an amazing miracle with a few fish and a few pieces of bread. And the whole multitude is not only fed, but they're satisfied, and there are 12 baskets left over. And so the people assume this must be the prophet that Moses wrote about. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18 of a prophet who in some ways would be like himself, who would come, who would ultimately, of course, be the Messiah. The Messiah would fill three offices, the office of prophet, priest, and king. And so they assume he's the prophet that Moses wrote about, so they want to make him king. But of course, their motives for making him king are all wrong. And so Jesus really just by the force of his own presence sends the multitude away. He commands the disciples to get in the boat and go across the water, and he goes to the mountain to pray. In the middle of the night, as he watches his disciples out on that lake, that small sea struggling, he does a triple miracle. He walks to them on the water. He instantly speaks to the storm, as the parallel Gospels tell us, and everything is stilled. And then in the blink of an eye, the boat goes from the middle of the lake to the other side of the lake. It's instantly transported to the other side. Of course, the people wake up the next morning, and they're looking for the Lord Jesus, and they don't know where he's at. And so they uh, follow the disciples. They assume, well, sooner or later, he'll catch up with them. And so they go across the lake. And when they get to the other side, they find the Lord Jesus, much to their surprise. And so if you remember, they ask him a question, when did you get here? But rather than satisfy their curiosity by answering their question, he breaks right into this sermon that we call the Bread of Life Discourse, the Bread of Life Sermon. Now, he knows what their motives are all about. He said in verse 26, you sought me. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And so the Lord penetrates between, uh, uh, gets underneath the surface of their words, and he gets right to their heart. And he says, in essence, the only reason you're following me right now is because you're looking for a free ride. You're looking for the next meal. And I fed you, and your thoughts really go no higher than the physical and the material realm. Now, they didn't understand that there was a message behind the miracle. Remember, the, the word he uses for miracle, John, is a very specialized word, Simeon, it means a miracle with a message. And so John selects the seven miracles that he does because there's a message behind each miracle. They don't know that. He's going to give a discourse on it. Now, understand, this miracle, if you remember, it's recorded in all four gospels. In fact, this is the only miracle that appears in all four gospels. But this is the only gospel, the gospel of John, that gives the sermon that went with the miracle to explain it. And when they finally get the message, well they don't like it all. Like it at all. And we're going to look at their reaction here in subsequent weeks. Notice verse 27. He puts his finger on the problem. He said, "Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life." which the Son of Man shall give to you, for in Him the Father, even God, has set His seal. So he points out that there are two kinds of food. There's food for the body, and there's food for the soul. Food for the body is necessary, but it's not the most important food. But food for the inner man, for the spirit, is critically important, and you cannot earn it. It is a gift. The Son of Man shall give it to you, for in Him the Father, even God, has set His seal. He is the only one who can administer... This internal food known as eternal life. Well, being irritated with his response, they demand a sign. Notice verse 30 again. They said to him, What then shall you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, please understand, when Jesus did miracles, he did miracles to teach. He never did miracles as publicity stunts. And so they want him to do a miracle. I mean, what sheer unbelief he had just fed some 20,000 people but that's the problem with miracle faith a faith that is built solely on miracles that misses the message of the miracle or misses the person that the miracle authenticates is a is a faith that always wants the next miracle and is never satisfied so they continue their argument with him and that's really what this sermon is it's a discourse but people interrupt the sermon. Imagine if I were preaching on a Sunday morning, some man steps, stands up and says, wait a minute, preacher, I don't know if I buy that. What do you mean by this? And that's the kind of dialogue they were having. And so they say, verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, and they loosely quote here Psalm 78, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. I don't miss the essence of what they're saying. They're saying, okay, you fed, these people, you fed us with the loaves and the fishes, but if you are really the prophet that Moses spoke of, if you're the Messiah, top what Moses did. He didn't feed the people once, he fed them every day for 40 years. And so the Lord responds, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, it's my father who gives you the bread out of heaven. He unveils the folly of their thinking by highlighting three truths. Number one, Moses didn't feed you, God did. Moses was just the instrument that God used in the miraculous. Secondly, what Moses did, he did in the past. He switches tenses here. Moses has given you the bread out of heaven. My father gives you the true bread out of heaven. What Moses did is done and over. What I am doing is very much a present reality. Third, what Moses did was bread, but what I give, is true bread. It's distinctly different from the manna that met only physical needs. What I give is the bread of God. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Manna sustains life. Jesus Christ gives life. So they said to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread to eat. Just like the woman at the well. He had to get her head out of the well and realise, help her to see it's not literal water I'm speaking of, but I'm speaking about living water. He had to get their mouths out of their plates and help them to see that, that what he's referring to is not literal bread, but himself as the living bread. Jesus said to them, I am, he's, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. The first of seven I am statements in the gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am. He uses the divine name. And as he begins to use this in different circumstances, the people are going to get matter and matter and matter. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And so he identifies himself with the Father by using the divine name that God used. This word, egoami, it's an equivalent of the Old Testament I am statement that God makes to Moses in the burning bush. And identifying himself with the Father, he claims to be both the bread that satisfies and the water that will help you never to thirst. Have you ever had that bread? Have you ever had this living water? Have you ever had the depths of your soul satisfied? some of you here today you may be trying all kinds of things to find meaning and purpose to life but only christ can fill that void he who comes to me shall not hunger he who believes in me will never thirst now that's the context of our text this morning follow along in your bibles let's read our passage and then we'll go back and we'll look at the finer details verse 41 john chapter 6 the jews were grumbling about him Because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, there in your note-taking outline, you see it on the back of your bulletin, you can see that we've outlined this portion of Scripture around a reaction, around a rebuke, and around a reaffirmation. First, there's the reaction, the reaction to Jesus' words. They murmured, they grumbled. That's followed by the rebuke, the rebuke of the Lord Jesus. He told them to stop their grumbling. And then there's the reaffirmation, he repeats himself, for a second time he brings it back to the central point, I am the bread of life. A reaction, a rebuke, and a reaffirmation. So let's start with the reaction to Jesus' words. Look at verse 41. The Jews therefore were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Now, they grumble for at least two reasons. When he said he was the bread, he shattered all their misconceptions by destroying their hopes for more physical food. They were hoping for a free ride. They were looking for another meal. And when he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven, he was saying that he was God. Now, five times in this portion of Scripture, he will say he came down from heaven, but they will not accept it. And so they grumble. Now, it's kind of interesting because there's a progression here. Chapter opens, there's enthusiasm, they're seeking him because of the signs they saw. Nothing wrong with that. Nicodemus sought the Lord Jesus, he said, we know you come from God, no one can do the signs that you do unless God were with him. But their signs turn into skepticism and unbelief, and they begin to grumble, and they're going to move from grumbling to arguing among one another, and eventually they're going to be forced to make a decision, and most of them will abandon him, we'll actually see three kinds of decisions. But what they grumble about principally is he said, I am the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. He was making and equating himself with God, as we'll see by the response that they give. They understood what he was saying. Hey, you talk to people today, and very often it will elicit the same response. Yesterday I was on the phone with a gentleman speaking with him, and it came down to this. I said, well, the question that you have to decide is who is Christ? Who is he? well, this gentleman thought he was just a man, another good teacher. I said, he didn't leave open that possibility for you. Of course, for him to claim to be God and know that he was not, you'd have to say he was a deceiver and certainly not a good man. You'd have to say he was evil because as he will later claim in this gospel, people will die because they will believe that he's Lord. It's hard to put a precise number on it. But most missiologists agree it's in the hundreds of millions. In fact, in the last century alone, more people died for the cause of Jesus Christ than in the previous 19 centuries. For Jesus Christ, knowing the implications that he would say that he is Lord, knowing those implications and lying about it anyway, you cannot say he's a good man because he would have the blood of uh, 300 plus million people on his hands, a lot of folks. Or, of course, the second possibility is that he was a kook, he was deranged, or he is who he claimed to be, his deity. But when you talk to people about Jesus being Lord, oh, now, now you're on a different plane. You see, because if he's God, if he's the creator, then everything he ever said is true, And what you do with the Lord is going to determine what God does with you. Because His claims are so narrow, I'm not simply a way, but I am the only way to the Father. There is salvation in no one else. And so people will grumble. Now, interestingly, this word for grumble is the same word. And there's a number of words in the Greek New Testament that could be translated grumble. But God the Holy Spirit uses the same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10 to describe what the Jews did when they grumbled over the manna that God supplied. They're grumbling again over a different kind of bread over the living bread that claims to come down from heaven. So here's the issue at hand. Where did he come from? They could not conceive that he came down from heaven. And so, verse 42, they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? They were saying, we know who his parents are. Joseph is his father. Mary is his mother. So how can he say he came down from heaven? They're saying, we know who your parents are. So what right do you have to claim to be nobler than us to have divine origin? Now, they thought they knew the Lord Jesus. They thought they knew his father and their mother, his mother, and so they were incensed that he would put himself on the same level as God, but they didn't really know him. In fact, he will say, over and over and over again. You don't know me. Now, they thought they knew his father. They thought Joseph was his father. Joseph was not his father. Joseph was his legal guardian, what we might call his stepfather, but he was not his biological father. He's not the son of Joseph. He is the son of God. And so when he describes his birth, he describes it with the terms that he came down out of heaven. That's the message of Christmas, Forget this ho, 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 jingle bell stuff. The message of Christmas is that God became a man. You could take this account and you could parallel it to the other passages in the Bible that speak of the virgin birth. And so these Jews erroneously identified Joseph as the father, and that was the basis for their grumbling. Now that's the reaction. They grumbled. Secondly, I want you to notice the rebuke. Look, if you will, at verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. Now, he gives us some insights here as to why people sometimes do not understand the things of God. Well, sometimes, you know, people just grumble among themselves. They talk among themselves. And it's kind of pulled ignorance. You know, what's your opinion? What do you think? In fact, as we move further through this, this, this sermon, they're going to do that very thing. They're going to go back and forth, and they're going to argue among themselves over their varying opinions. And of course, if you don't have a plumb line, if you don't have some kind of way to discern what's true, you'll get into all kinds of arguments. Because who's to say, my opinion is better than your opinion? But if God has spoken and he has not stuttered and he has in Holy Scripture, then we have a plumb line by which we can discern what's right and what's wrong. And so he explains why they're ignorant. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws me, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the connection between verses 43 and 44. The reason they are in grumbling unbelief is because no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And God is not drawing these people. Now, if you were here last week, we saw that God desires to draw all men to himself, but not all men will be drawn. People can take the revelation of God, however it's given and the creation and the conscience within, whether it's the Ten Commandments that God wrote in your heart or the Ten Commandments he wrote on tablets of stone and on paper. When you take revelation and you suppress it, then God stops new revelation. And so these people are not being drawn because they are unbroken, non-repentant. And so there's this divine human process that takes place. God is the initiator. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him because we're dead in our false steps, our trespasses and our shortcomings, our sins. And so no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. So it initiates with the Lord, but man must respond and God has given you a free will. And so the point the Lord wants to make is very simple. You've not responded because the Father is not drawing you. And now, they'll say that they know God, and Jesus will say, you don't know God. In fact, the only father you know is your father, the devil. He's going to say in the 8th chapter, you talk about pointed preaching. And so, to authenticate his statement, he quotes the Scripture. He goes back to their Scriptures. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. the ones Who are taught of God are those who hear and those who learn. It is through the word of God, through the truth of God, that God draws the sinner to himself. And so scripture after scripture in the Old Testament teaches this very principle. Now he quotes one scripture, Isaiah 54, 13, and all your sons will be taught of the Lord. But it's not restricted to this scripture. You might want to circle the letter S at the end of the word, prophet. What Isaiah said is representative of what the Old Testament prophets over and over and over again said. For instance, in Jeremiah 31, God said, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. The Old Testament prophets predicted a second birth, a new birth. We call it the new covenant. People in the Old Testament were not born again. They had a relationship with the Spirit, but it was not the kind of relationship that New Covenant believers had. It was not until Jesus Christ, in time and space, died and paid the debt for our sin, so that when you come by faith in Him, He can declare you righteous or holy, that the Holy Spirit can come and dwell on the inside. So Ezekiel, like mine, will say, God will take your heart of stone, and He will give you a heart of flesh. No one will have to go around teaching you that uh, you need a personal relationship with the Lord because you already have one. Joel the prophet, similar, will say, the Spirit is coming, and he's going to pour himself upon all flesh, upon all peoples. And so prophet after prophet after prophet in the Old Testament said, collectively, and they shall all be taught of God. Who? Those who heard and learned my word. And so the Lord wants you to understand that the manner by which God the Father draws a sinner to himself... Is through the word. You have to hear the word. No one here, no one in this room, no one in this world has ever become a Christian at any point in human history apart from the word of God. Now, understand, there was a time in human history when the first book of the Bible was not penned. And so God's word came in various forms and manners. But no one has ever become a Christian apart from the word of God. Jesus has been hammering this truth, and he's going to unfold it even further. Look at John 5:24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, And believes him who sent me has eternal life. There's a hearing of the word of God. You hear, you learn, and when you respond properly, you can come to the Father. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.23? He said, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. You believe that? Do you believe that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about conversion? Now, I know you do if you're a Christian in your mind, but in practice, do you believe it? You see, the degree to which you believe that is the degree to which you're going to use God's Word in trying to win people to Christ. Oh, people say, I shared my testimony. Wonderful, your testimony has no authority. How is it any different from the Mormon who said, oh, God gave me this warm feeling in my bosom and so I know it's true? Your testimony means schmats. Now, God can potentially use your testimony as a platform in which to share the gospel, but no one is saved by your testimony. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God as a living sword, as a living active uh, word to bring about conversion in the heart. He'll say to some other people after he uh, dealt with a paralytic, He says, and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him who is sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them they have you have eternal life. But it's these that bear witness of me. Oh, they wanted to see something. Jesus said you have to hear something. You have to learn something. Now, understand the Bible is not like a magic wand. You just say it and people drop on their knees and they're saved. Because you have to do something with that word. James will write, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Jesus told the parable, a man went out and he sowed seed. And he said, as he explained the parable, the seed is the word of God. They all heard the same message. The problem is it fell on different kinds of hearts. Some that were one set that was responsive, the other three that were not. And so it's the word, as he will say later on, the words that I have spoken to you back in verse 63 that are spirit in our life. It is God's word that he uses as the instrument to
1: draw you to himself. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 787 7478 and requesting program John. one, One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.